Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be learning quite a bit, you know, about lending. We're gonna be learning about how you shift resources when there is some unexpected events, just like what we have been experiencing with COVID. But I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Jason Gus. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you are originally from Palm Springs in California, near LA. So a resort town. How was growing up there? You know, growing up in Palm Springs was a great experience. Uh, you know, I was able to have a very close-knit group of friends. Um, and it, it also, uh, because, you know, in Palm Springs, there aren't really any universities in the area, um, it made me not afraid to really kind of leave my comfort zone and kind of move far away from my home for college. So actually, uh, you know, upon graduating high school, I actually moved to the East Coast uh, for university and have actually been there ever since. You know, it's amazing because in, in the West Coast, you have amazing universities. So why, why the East Coast? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. Even though Palm Springs is technically part of California, it actually feels more like Arizona. It's, it's, the, it's the desert. So we're, it, it's very inland and um, you know, far, far away from kind of where, where most of the larger universities are in California. And so for me, uh, it was just something where I was ready to get a complete change of scenery and, and, and totally leave my environment. Very cool. And obviously, when you go to um, to college, you know, the entrepreneurial uh, thing, you know, comes knocking. And I know that you were doing some some hedge fund stuff with 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 the roommates. So uh, tell us about this. Absolutely. So, you know, in, in retrospect, uh, it probably seemed doomed to fail from the start. But, um, you know, it was a phenomenal learning experience for me. So a couple of friends and I, um, you know, we were obsessed with the big short, short book uh, with the concept in there that effectively binary events, mispriced options, because they couldn't be incorporated into Black Shoals. So we came up with a trading strategy that we, we found compelling, where we tried to take advantage of options, or what we perceive to be options mispricings, uh, due to companies facing binary events, effectively focused on three sets of opportunities. One was uh, pharma announcements, so pharmaceutical companies uh, tend to be very volatile, and uh, they also face what's called a PDUFA, which is you know approval for a drug, and usually it it's the make or break for a company. And you could try to you could basically model out what the value of the contract would be if it's successful. And so, and you would also be able to understand kind of what the impact to the business would be if they 
either got delayed or, or, or actually was declined by the FDA. And so we used to put on kind of straddles and strangles, uh, different options positions to try to uh, isolate the volatility, you know, kind of go long vol on those types of events. We also looked at earnings announcements and then also companies facing uh, restructuring events or, or, um, or, or re- uh, regulatory uh, actions. Uh, and so we launched that business from our dorm room. Uh, we kind of pulled some cash that we had saved from summer jobs and also um, our uh, signing bonuses for, for the jobs that, that we had locked up when we were seniors. And we ran that strategy ahead of uh, kind of taking our real jobs uh, at fall. And uh, the reason why it was such a great experience, it ended up not working. Um, the trading strategy uh, didn't scale. And we didn't really have a concept that you know, in order to run a real business, you have to have large scale. We thought that, well, you know, maybe we could build this out to be 10 million under management, 15 million under management, and we more or less got laughed out of rooms. But what it taught us is uh, it was kind of our first experience pitching real business ideas to people who could actually take, uh, you know, fund that fund those businesses. And so, uh, you know, I actually learned a lot of how I pitch my company today uh, from those, you know, what I would argue were very low quality pitches I was doing uh, for the fund to kind of fund of funds and, and other folks who were who could fund uh, funds. So what was the key insight into pitching, especially for the folks that are listening that maybe are thinking about fundraising? Absolutely. So the, the number one learning out of it is you need to talk to lots of different people. And so you're going to get a ton of no's before you get a single yes. And then once you get a yes, everything's easy because people who are t- telling you no previously will use it as credibility that you're actually a real entity and then they'll start saying yes. And so kind of the most interesting insight was talk to as many people as possible. Uh, the number two kind of most interesting learning that really helped us was that your pitch is going to evolve over time. And so the tactic that I would do is I would have a list of people who have agreed to speak to me. I kind of learn a little bit about their firms to try to understand who's most likely to want to go forward with this business idea. And then I'd reverse rank order them. So I would talk to the people who I thought were least likely to work with me first because I knew that my pitch is likely to get better over time. And I would go through a pitch every single time I got a question that I didn't know the answer to, or every time that I felt that an answer I was giving was weak and, and insufficient, I'd make sure to make a note of it. And then I would make sure that the next time I pitched, I had those answers ready, or at least um, kind of refashioned. And so by the time you get to kind of the fourth, fifth, sixth pitch, um, there's only, you know, there's an exhaustive list of questions that people typically ask you when you're fundraising. And uh, it really enabled me to not only fine tune the equity deck and pitch decks that I put together, but also my overall presentation. Got it. And, and obviously, you know, after, after the hedge fund experience, you know, then you landed in, into Capital One, which was your segue into, into obviously the, the, the entrepreneurial thing, you know, like doing what you guys are doing today with Octane Lending. So, so tell us about this segue, because obviously this experience was probably for you like very, very, like a, like a great experience to really shape up, you know, like the way you were, you were looking at things. But, but obviously this really led you to, to, to calling people and to even, you know, coming up with different concepts and to trying to fund them. So, so tell us about this. Absolutely. So Capital One was a great uh, learning place for me. So I worked in corporate strategy, which was their in-house consulting arm. So we would do kind of similar projects to what you'd be doing if you're working for, say, Bain or Accenture or something along those lines. And it really kind of taught me how to, to think through business problems, think through solutions. 
uh, and then also continued to help uh, shape the way in which I, I pitch ideas. So, um, you know, effectively through the pitches with business leaders, you're trying to convince them to do something new or something different or change something that they're doing when you have you know, not necessarily the same level of experience or time under your belt as they would. And so your pitch really needs to be compelling and it needs to really address the concerns of the people that you're talking to. So kind of really helping me understand how to dissect business problems and then also how to, how to communicate the solutions, uh, something I really picked up from Capital One. And so effectively, the genesis story for our company is I, I was staffed on a project in Seattle. I had dinner with a friend of mine, and the two of us were talking about how we could start, uh, you know, how we were interested in starting a company that was in an overlooked market, so not kind of a traditional venture capital space, something that uh, lacked kind of existing institutional uh, investment, um, but also was solving a real business problem. And so it turned out that a coworker who also became my co-founder uh, had done a rotation in the power sports lending group. So uh, power sports or motorcycles, ATVs, UTVs, jet skis, snowmobiles, that sort of thing. And uh, although the financing process was relatively similar to auto in that consumers purchase these power sports units from dealerships, and then most consumers actually finance their purchases, um, none of the lender aggregators that the finance managers who were helping consumers get their loans uh, had any sort of real penetration. So finance managers would apply one at a time through various web portals, which is very inefficient and tedious. And so there was an opportunity that he had discovered to build out, uh, use technology to more or less make it fast and easy to apply to various lenders to help consumers get the best rate uh, in, in the fastest way possible. And so while we were having dinner, I, you know, I remembered that this inefficiency had existed and I had worked a lot in auto where things are much more efficient. And uh, you know, kind of flagged this as a very interesting business opportunity that we want to explore. And so I quit my job a few weeks later, uh, moved out to Seattle. And, you know, at the time I was, I was about you know, 23 or 24. And, um, you know, we had this, you know, interesting power sports idea, uh, but we weren't necessarily fully ready to commit to it just that. And so ahead of going into just jumping into this business, um, we wanted to see if there were other ideas out there that might be interesting. And we had heard, um, I'm blanking on the name of who this is. But so, you know, th there were a couple of Stanford entrepreneurs who had sold the business for three quarters of a billion. And they came up with their business problem uh, because they were, they were uh, pain and problem focused entrepreneurs as opposed to passion driven entrepreneurs. You have some people who found a company because they love that thing. And that's how they discovered the issue and, and, and how to add value. There are other people who kind of, narrow in on an unsexy industry or unsexy business problem and narrow in on a true business pain that uh, you know they're not necessarily passionate about. They're passionate about fixing the problem, not necessarily the problem and the industry that it's in. And I always thought that was a very interesting concept. And the way in which they came up with it is they went around and just started interviewing people for, you know, for months to try to find a business problem, they ultimately stumbled on the problem that ended up becoming their three and a half billion dollar business. And so we thought the version that we can do uh, was to call people off our college alumni network. And you know, the three questions that, that we came up with that we thought would be, uh, you know, facilitate the best conversation to find a true business problem. And I, I truly recommend this uh, for anyone who wants to start a business is, what do you hate most about your job? The reason why that question's interesting is if you hate something about your job, 
you're, there's generally a business problem that if solved, people would actually pay for. Number two, we asked what are the biggest inefficiencies in your market? So just kind of always interesting to hear what people within an industry see as the biggest problems. And then three, um, you know, it's great to solve a lot of problems, but ultimately you, you need a customer segment that supports you in some way. So the third thing that we would ask is, what would you pay me to build for you? And usually if someone's willing to pay someone to build something for them, it's truly a problem that they're facing in, in, at work. And so we talked to all sorts of people. We talked to um, you know, CEOs of um, you know, power plants, uh, talked to folks in private equity, talked to people in, who worked at, at the largest newspapers in the country, people who worked at paper mills, retail, all sorts of different people. Um, and we came up with a list of five ideas that we thought were interesting, where we thought there was a real business problem that we thought we could actually solve uh, with our expertise and execute on. Uh, and with a reasonable amount of capital that we can raise, in addition to the power sports idea, and we more or less applied for incubator funding for for all of them, and uh, ultimately Dream Adventures, um, which is, was the incubator that we did, uh, picked us up for the power sports idea. Now, in retrospect, knowing what I know now and how much I've learned about how to you know raise capital and kind of running a startup, um, you know, I'm very thankful that it was the power sports idea that I got picked up because it was definitely the most most compelling. Um, but at the time. You know, we, we kind of took this approach where we let the capital that we raised help kind of give us the credibility for going after, you know, a few different business ideas that we thought were equally compelling. Got it. Got it. So then what happened next? Yeah. So uh, we, we launched our, you know, similar to what many entrepreneurs experience in an incubator. It's kind of like a, you have more or less three months to live or die. And you live by raising your capital, you die if you don't raise capital, and you kind of do something different. And so we set out um, you know, kind of some milestones that we needed to hit, which was more or less get a term sheet for a seed round by the time we left our incubator. And uh, we were fortunate enough to uh, have found an insurance company that, that understood the business problem that we were solving in our market. And a lot of the problems that we face is that uh, when we were pitching VC firms, they, they w would like us. They would think the idea we're going after is very interesting, but they would say, I have no way of understanding this problem because I just don't know this market at all. And so we are you know, going after a market that tends to serve kind of middle America and the South, whereas a lot of VC firms focus on things that uh, affect the coasts. And so we just didn't really click with a lot of folks um, when we were first starting. And I remember I kept this Excel list of all the people I pitched and I got over a hundred notes. So basically, every single person who would talk to me, I would pitch them. I would. Uh, we were hustling for introductions. We tried all of our college networks, LinkedIn. Our, you know, Dreamit set us up with various VC firms. It was kind of the same story until we met this insurance company who knew our business, knew our problem, and said, "Yes, this is a real problem. They know this is a big uh, market opportunity." And they agreed to make an initial investment in us. And that was kind of the credibility we needed to show the VC firms that this was a real problem. Um, we then partnered up with Contour Venture Partners uh, you know, very quickly thereafter, uh, to, who led our seed round. And we closed that in December of uh, 2014. Um, we then, uh, you know, within, I would say, six weeks of closing that, uh, basically found out that our business case was cracked. Um, you know, more or less, although there was a need to build this aggregator 
to help finance managers apply to lending sources in one place, as opposed to going to various web portals, rekeying customer information. That was a big business problem. That was a, a need. Unfortunately, though, the sales dynamics for getting lenders on the platform um, were, were just so unfavorable that there was no real business to be built. The issue was twofold. One is lenders who were doing uh, something one way, right? If they were manual, they wanted to remain manual. Like they were being successful doing things the way they are. So why would they change the way they're doing things? And then two, the sales cycle for, for lenders uh, is just very, very long. So the chances that we'd actually be able to get enough lenders on our platform before we ran out of capital uh, was very, very low. And there was actually a catalyst event. Um, we had uh, a lender who was, uh, who was very good on our platform that made up a vast majority of our revenue. Uh, I, I blank on the exact numbers, but it's probably 70 to 80% of our revenue was one source. And uh, effectively, um, they, uh, I got a call from them and they were just leaving the market and nothing to do with us. This was in uh, February, March of 2015. Nothing to do with us. And you know, imagine yourself sitting in a startup office, 500 square feet, six people arm in arm on the phones all the time, trying to make it work, trying to survive, trying to hustle to make, to get enough traction to get us to the next level. And the platform that made up almost all your revenue, <clears throat> your customer that made up almost your revenue leaves. What do you do? So I got that phone call um, and you know, kind of hung up. We had it all hands. We talked about it and we said like, look, we all know that this business model that we're pursuing, the lender aggregator doesn't work. And this is kind of the sign for us to pivot all of our resources to actually drive what the real business value is for this market, which is to use technology to power a lender to serve a space as opposed to using technology to power a marketplace of lenders. And it was that moment that actually probably saved the company. If, if that lender hadn't left, we probably would have been bumbling along trying to send lend, sign lenders for another year. It would have been a little bit longer for us to run out of capital than normal. And we wouldn't have felt the urge to really switch and pivot to where the value is, feel confident enough to dump a business model that we had been building for a very long time that, uh, and, and do something totally different that we knew would actually drive the real business value. That's amazing. That's amazing. So then for the folks that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Octane Lending? Absolutely. So we went from, think, it, think of us originally as like Lending Tree, if you're familiar with that platform. Uh, we switched from that business model to be more like... Um, it, just a, a, a lender itself. So the way that our business works today is we own all of our technology. So we own the platform that the finance managers use to clone, close loans. We also own our loan origination system, which is an underwriting platform. And we also own a lender called Roadrunner Financial, which is a wholly owned subsidiary. And effectively, we use the technology that we built to power that lender to serve the consumers and dealers in our market. And we also partner with manufacturers uh, who subsidize our origination flow to help get consumers very competitive rates to help drive more sales. And, and obviously for a business like this, I mean, you, it's capital intensive. I mean, you were alluding to it, the amount of capital, that the, you know, the investors that you got on board and, and so forth. How much money have you guys raised to date? Absolutely. We've raised over $120 million in venture capital. 
Um, and then we've also raised uh, several hundred million in debt capital, including a $211 million securization we completed last year. And that's interesting because obviously this is like a completely different structure from like the traditional SaaS business or startup that maybe the listeners are, are used to hearing about. Obviously, when you're on the lending side, you need money to, to, to fund the operations, the operations itself, not the actual execution of the business. No? So, so how te- walk us a little bit through this type of structure. How does that work? Absolutely. So if you're a non-bank lender, uh, so if you're a bank, you could just use your deposits. If you're a non-bank lender, you kind of have three options. Uh, you could do what's called a whole loan sale. So you originate a loan and then you sell it to someone else. So someone else is basically providing all the capital for the loan and someone else basically takes the loss exposure as well. And you get paid kind of an upfront fee or servicing spread. The second type is called warehouse lending. So warehouse lending means a bank gives you capital, lends you capital to lend to someone else. So the most common example would be you have $100 of loans. A bank will give you $0.80 against that $100. And then you fund the junior $0.20, uh, $20, and your $20 sits beneath the bank. So you take all the losses before they take losses, which gives them a much more secure position, which enables them to lend to you cheaper than you lend to external borrowers, in which case you can make a spread on their capital. And that's probably the most common way that lenders will fund their loans. Because as a lender, you don't want to use your venture capital. You want to use as little of that as possible to fund the loans because it's very inefficient. And so using debt capital from other sources is a great way to be able to fund you know, hundreds of millions of loans, for example. The third way that you could fund your business is you could use a combination of the first two methods to accumulate uh, a couple hundred million dollars in loans, usually, or, or more. And you securitize, which means you issue bonds against those loans. And so let's say you have $200 million of loans. You might issue $180 million of bonds against those loans. And usually you can only really do that type of thing once you have sufficient scale, track record, and capitalization. Uh, because generally for securization, although you could do an unrated securization, you usually want to get the rating agencies involved. In order to do that, you need to have a lot of track record. If you look at the fintech space, you see examples of all of these. And generally, as you become more mature in a lender company, a larger, a larger company, you will typically uh, use a combination of these three methods to fund your business. Um, so if you just kind of look in the market, Avant, um, although they use a combination of warehouse line securitization and whole loans, they started out primarily in warehouse lines. The firm started primarily with warehouse lines and then ultimately securitization. Uh, Lending Club uh, started out primarily as whole loans. Um, businesses that do uh, mortgages primarily do whole loans. Um, you know, you have Common Bond and SoFi. We use a combination of whole loans, warehouse, and securization, but they use a lot of securization. So those are kind of the examples out there uh, and the different big big players. And so for us, you know, it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, you know, we needed to raise this debt capital in order to convince our Series A investors that that we would be a viable business. And so, back in 2016, when we raised our Series A, we had the challenge of uh, not only raising the Series A but also getting another 25 million dollars of a warehouse line. And so, I knew nothing about warehouse lending back then. And so, I read up as much as I could. I talked to as many people as I could to kind of get up to speed on the topic. 
And then I did the exact same thing that I did with the equity fundraise. I came up with a list of, uh, I think it was about 50 firms or so. I reverse rank ordered uh, the firms based off how likely I thought it was that they would want to work with me so that I can meet the people who were least likely to work with me first because it'd be the least expensive to give up and, and mess up. And uh, I would pitch. And every time I pitched, if there was a question I didn't know the answer to, I'd write it down. If there was an answer I would give that I didn't like, I would make sure that I wrote that down as well. And then every the next time, I would have an answer for it, and I would pitch a little bit better. Uh, I kept going and going. Uh, usually by about the fourth or fifth pitch, uh, you know, it was able to do very well. Um, and then you know, six weeks going from not knowing anything about warehouse lending to uh, holding six term sheets. And then once we got the term sheets, uh, we were able to uh, use our different offers to kind of work with the different institutions to narrow in on an offer that worked best for us. And, um, you know, effectively, uh, once you have multiple term sheets, um, it enables you to really get the terms that you believe that you deserve and kind of work best for your business. That's amazing. And how many employees do you guys have today? Yeah, so we're, we're now at about 200 folks. Uh, we're, we're headquartered out of New York City. We have about 70 in our New York office, about 100 in Dallas. Um, and then we have a handful in Houston, in Malmo, Sweden. Uh, for engineering offices, and then we have um, a, a handful of remote employees as well. So there is obviously like one question that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show, and that is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time, Jason, I mean, obviously you've been at it now for a while with Octane since 2014, and obviously you've had all types of experiences, but if you had the opportunity to go back in, back in time and and give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, knowing what you know now? Absolutely. I, I think the most, there's two things that I think are most important. So the two pieces of advice I would, get, I would give would be be resilient. Um, as an entrepreneur, uh, as many, many of the listeners know and have heard from others, you hit failure all the time. And oftentimes, depending on how you react to that failure, could be the make or break for your business. And many of our failures ended up being the best things for our business. They don't feel like it at the time. They feel awful. They feel very painful. But if you're able to keep running through these brick walls um, and, and be able to you know, kind of pivot to the value, um, you will actually be able to push your business forward um, in, in momentous ways. I, I look at, you know, initially, our initial business didn't work. The business model was cracked. And when that, the lender who made up most of our revenue left, uh, you know, we could have looked at it in two ways. We could have packed up our stuff and gone home, uh, but we forced ourselves to, to, to self-reflect, figure out where the value in our platform was that people were connecting with, and then change the business to find that value. Responding to failure with, with, a, with, a, with action as opposed to inaction. Uh, we once had a major manufacturer uh, who we were, thought we were going to pilot with, uh, would have completely changed our business at the time. Uh, it would have been very large for us. The day uh, we, we, the entire company was working on this launch for about 90 days, um, and the day before we launched, uh, the manufacturer um, you know, decided to go with another partner. They they got kind of like a last minute bid that kind of undercut us, and they went with someone else. And we could have been chosen to be devastated and kind of just kicked the wall and and gone back to business as usual. But we didn't do that. We tried to reflect, what did we do wrong? How can we change this business so that we aren't leaving ourselves open to this type of thing again? 
And so the big thing that came out of that, which was also one of the most momentous things for our company, was you know acknowledging that partnerships are very important and great for our business, and we always want to do great, uh, great things for our partners. But also acknowledging that we don't want the business success to be in the hands of another company. And so therefore, we started focusing our business initiatives on how can we make it so that we're partnership agnostic, so that we're glad if we get one, but it doesn't impact business if we don't. It totally changed our objectives and key results, which is how we set our corporate um, goals and um, you know, effectively completely changed the way in which we go about corporate strategy for our business and has driven a lot of the, the success uh, and growth that we've had uh, you know, over the last year. Um, and then the, the last thing that I'll say, which is, was probably the most surprising to me, um, you know, I was a relatively young entrepreneur when I, when I started the company um, with, with my, my two co-founders. Um, and I had basically no management experience. And I think a lot of other entrepreneurs are similar to me where um, great ideas, but just don't really have experience managing people. And so a piece of advice that I'd give myself is that culture in a company really matters um, and to never be afraid, um, you know, asking for help as it relates to management problems and managing people. Because if you don't get ahead of, uh, you know, kind of, managing people issues as they come up, um, it will end up taking up uh, an absurd disproportionate amount of your cycles. And not only that, they're very, very stressful. I, I'd like to say that we've had actually very few stressful business issues, but we've had you know, uh, issues where you know, if we would have spent a bit more time, got ahead of it and, and managed situations better, we could have solved a lot of our stressful uh, you know, you know, pe- people people. Um, uh, interactions. Um, and so that's something that I just would have never thought about going into starting a company that really matters. It really matters that you, um, are able to work through and have a successful culture from, from kind of the get go, if you can. I love it. I love it. And Jason, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Absolutely. Yeah. Shoot me a LinkedIn message, uh, or just, you could feel free to email me at jason at octanelending.com. Um, you know, I, I love, you know, anyone who's looking for advice on raising equity or debt capital, uh, you know, always ha- happy to be a resource um, and that sort of thing. Amazing. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.